Welcome to Unity of Fairfax, a positive path for spiritual living and spiritual center for education, practice, and service in Northern Virginia. We hope you find inspiration in this week's message. Was the famous March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And many of our members at Unity of Fairfax were actually there. This was a march that came together in order to demand an end to segregation, to demand fair wages and economic justice and voting rights and education and long overdue civil rights protections. This march had 250,000 people, which up to that point was the largest peaceful demonstration in Washington, D.C. So this month, as we are preparing for the 60th anniversary of the march, which will happen next Saturday, and uh, so we're doing that, I also wanted to conflate that with the work of Howard Thurman in his pivotal book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And as a part of that experience, I've asked members of Unity of Fairfax who are actually there to share a few words about why they were there, what it meant to them, and what it means today. So sharing with us today is Joanne Phillips. Good morning. Good morning. I first want to thank Reverend Russ for introducing me to Howard Thurman about a year ago and for giving me the opportunity to share some reflections about the 1963 March on Washington. I would also like to thank Patty Hagan and Carol Bradley for the very thoughtful presentations last two Sundays. They are hard acts to follow, so remember that when you're at brunch talking about me. After talking with them and listening to their presentations, I realized that my experience was so different because my history was so different. And Carol had uh, charged me to tell my story. I was at the 1963 march, but my journey there was a long and rough and difficult road. My parents were very nervous about my going, but they knew they couldn't keep me away. As an African-American woman who grew up in the segregated South, in many ways I felt a connection with those who Thurman calls the disinherited. He often referred to the disinherited as poor and having few opportunities, but this was not my experience. I lived on the campus of a historically black college where my parents were teachers. In my neighborhood, there was just about every household had at least one PhD from places like Harvard and Yale and Columbia. And my father, who graduated from Cornell as the fourth African-American in the United States to have a PhD in mathematics. So I had many opportunities afforded to me as a child of faculty members. We could go swimming in the college pool for two hours every day in the summer, and I took advantage of that for two hours every day. (laughs) 
I took art and music lessons from faculty and college students. I attended Sunday school taught by philosophy majors. I even took piano lessons from a concert pianist, but they did not stick. Please do not ask me to play the piano. I started ballet dance lessons when I was five and continued until I graduated from high school. When I was a graduate student, I paid my tuition by teaching dance classes to the faculty children. With all these experiences, I lived in a totally segregated community. I went to an all-black church, went to all-black schools through high school, graduated from a historically black college. My doctor was black. My dentist was black. My parents' lawyer was black. All of the teachers and all of the administrators in my school were black. The only time I saw white people was when we went to town to shop. The only white people that I had ever talked to on a regular basis were my dance teachers. So you see, although I lived in a totally segregated world, I was not deprived. But I will never forget the day that I began to think that there may be something wrong with me and my family, but I had no idea why. I was four years old and was just beginning to learn to read. My mother, my, I'm sorry, my mother and I had been reading at night before bed Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The next day, we were riding through downtown, and I noticed the marquee at the local theater said, now showing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I was quite excited and very proud that I was able to read that sign. I immediately asked my parents if they would take me to see it. There was no reason why not. I even offered to pay my own way. I thought I might have enough in my piggy bank to do just that. <laughs> to this day, I will never forget the way my parents looked at each other when I asked that question. I had never seen that look from either of them before. And they said, we can't go to that movie. We, we will take you when the movie comes to the theater on the campus. I began to wonder what was wrong with us that we couldn't go. I was four, so the thought did not linger long, but the feeling did. I realize now that the look was one of sadness and fear, a look that my own children have probably seen on my face more than once. As I got older and could read a bit better, I began to notice signs around town on doors, water fountains, the bathrooms, colored, white. And it became clear to me that there were places I could not go and things I could not do because I was colored. I learned that those were the rules and it would be dangerous not to follow them. I thought it was just that some people didn't want to be with 
together and thought that it was better for us to be separated. And I had a good life, so whatever. Let's skip to 1954. I'm 11 years old and in the seventh grade, which was still elementary school back in the dark ages. <laughs> One day, our teacher came to class with a radio. Can you believe that? A radio in class. This was a surprise. She turned it on with some nice music and announced that we were going to listen to the radio all day as long as we behaved because sometime that day, the Supreme Court was going to announce its decision about integrating public schools. That was really the first time it occurred to me that the government decided what was segregated. My introduction to institutional racism. The summer of 1955, Emmett Till was slaughtered. I saw the pictures of him in the casket in Ebony and Jet magazines and in the Afro-American newspaper. I felt sick. December 1955, Rosa Parks refused to get up and give her seat to a white man on the bus. The bus boycott begins and lasts a full year. In 1956, Dr. Martin Luther King was asked to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association and does a tour of HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. And he came to my college and I was there and I heard him speak for the first time. There were other things that I remember very clearly, the four black girls who were murdered in a bombing of a church in Alabama as they sat in Sunday school. The Selma March, the Freedom Rides, and in 1959, the first sit-ins by black students in North Carolina. In 1960, I graduated from high school and spent the summer participating in sit-ins and picket lines at downtown stores on Saturdays. We didn't just go down and decide, hey, let's go demonstrate today. There were classes where we learned about the importance of nonviolent resistance. If you've read Thurman's book, you've heard that term. We did role plays and talked about how it felt to have people screaming profanities and epithets at you. We, we were assured that there would be adults with us at all times who were prepared to step in and protect us. We learned about the committee of community leaders who supported us and were engaged in a dialogue with the police department, local merchant, merchants, and union leaders. Everything was being done to protect us and bring about a resolution to this situation. Was I af afraid? Yes. Was I being deceptive by acting calm and like I was not hurt, that it was not hurtful and frightening? Yes. Did I hate those who were attacking me or who made and enforced these discriminatory laws? No. 
through it all, we were taught that fear was normal, deception was a strategy to stay safe, and hate was never acceptable. Every Saturday evening, there were mass meetings where people talked about their experiences, what progress the community leaders were making, prayers and encouragement from religious leaders to continue to be <laughs> calm and to not let hate win. We sang freedom songs and ended the service every Saturday evening by standing and singing, lift every voice and sing, which we referred to as the Negro National Anthem. These services were a way for the community to express their appreciation and support for our efforts. The sit-ins and picketing in my town continued and I participated in the summers when I came home from school. So you see, my trip to the march in 1963 was a long one. It started when I was four. I had grown from a little girl who didn't understand to a young woman for whom there was no doubt in her mind that she would go to the march. Now, I'm an old woman who still doesn't understand some things sometimes, but I have committed myself to always speak my truth and listen with respect and truth the truth of others. No more deception, no more fear, never hate. The hounds of hell, which Thurman calls fear, deception, and hate, are of no use to me. Unity of Fairfax has taught me that God lives in everyone, even if I don't agree with what they say, feel, or do. All people deserve my respect and love because we are all manifestations of the divine. I hope, I know that some of our congregants are planning to attend the march on the 26th of this year. I wish I could go. My mind and my spirit are willing, but my body is weak, so I won't be going out there. I will, however, be coming here to the church because they're going to show it on the big screen. And I have four televisions in my house, and I, nobody lives there but me, so I've got a television. <laughs> but I want to be here like those people who came out on Saturday nights to church to hear about our experience at the March on Washington and to support us and encourage us and let us know that even if they couldn't be there in person, they were there in spirit. I hope many of you will come on the evening of the 26th, either to go to the march, or if you can't go to the march in the morning, come here and join those of us who will be praying and listening and supporting members of our congregation who are taking it upon themselves to represent us and stand for us at the March on Washington. I'm going to read a poem to finish my little talk. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very long. Some of you will recognize this part. 
It is entitled On the Pulse of Morning. It was written by Maya Angelou, and she gave this recitation of the poem at the inauguration of um, old what's-his-name Clinton. <laughs> what's-his-name Clinton? Yes. The poem describes three elements that talk to us, that speak to us. The rock, the river, and the tree. If you get a chance, look it up on Facebook. There's some wonderful uh, videos of uh, Angelou reading the poem herself. I used to read it to my, when I was teaching teachers. They said I could read it just as good as she could, so I'm gonna read part of it to you. <laughs> the horizon leans forward, offering you space to place new steps of change here on the pulse of this fine day. May you have the courage to look up and out, and upon me, the rock, the river, the tree, your country, no less to Midas than the mendicant, no less to you now than to the Mastodon then. Here on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and onto the face of your country and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. Thank you, Joanne. Absolutely beautiful. Heroes and sheroes are all among us if we will but listen to what their stories are. And everyone has a story worth listening to and a journey worth celebrating. Thank you, Joanne. Has anybody ever had a temper tantrum? <laughs> ever, ever watched anybody have a temper tantrum? Yeah, you gotta have a temper tantrum. You know, these, these violent demonstrations of rage and anger. Uh, you know, I, I just love the word. And, 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 and I looked up its origin. Where does the word tantrum antecedents for it? So, sturm, meaning storm. So, it's a rant storm. So, yeah, rant storms. Yeah. Not much fun to watch, but every so often very cathartic to have. You know, everybody, anybody ever have a temper tantrum afterwards? You think, ah, oh, I feel so much better now. I've had a temper tantrum. Yeah, sometimes you have to. You know, we're going to get back to that in a moment. Joanne mentioned the three hounds of hell that Howard Thurman talks about in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And the disinherited are people with their backs against the wall who for some reason are feeling some manner of oppression, whether from the outside or from the inside. There's something going on in their mind, some thought process that means they're not good enough or less than or that sort of thing. Or maybe, again, it comes from the outside that says, you people don't belong here or you're not welcome, that sort of thing. So a tantrum sometimes 
is really an expression of one of those hounds, namely the hound that is referred to as hate. Now, I realize hate is a four-letter word, and we don't generally use that sort of language in the church house, but we're going to today because it occurs to me that hate could also be an acronym for having a tantrum everywhere. You think about that energy, you know, if you have hate in your mind or hate in your heart, if you see it in the world, it's just like, it's just pervasive, like a stench that you can't get away from. And it's like, it just goes everywhere and fills up all the space and it's not really pleasant to watch. And we even have monitors that monitor hate in the world. You know, there are various governmental and non-governmental organizations that track hate groups and the things that they're doing, the way in which they're taking their tantrums all over the place and making life miserable for others. Or we have this topic in communications called hate speech. You know, it's kind of dicey. On the one hand, it's permitted because you have free speech. On the other hand, it's always harmful. That verbal tantrum that just goes, whether it's around you or it's just in your head and you're hearing it over and over and over. So as people of faith, what do we do about hate? Our traditions have various ways of addressing it. And in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, Howard Thurman kind of gives Christianity a hard time for its treatment of this four-letter word. He said, Christianity has almost been sentimental in its efforts to deal with hatred in human life. It is sought, sought to get rid of it through preachments, trust me, I know, being a preacher, by moralizing, by platitudinous judgments. It has hesitated to analyze the basis of hatred and to evaluate it in terms of its possible significance in the lives of people possessed by it. So he's saying, where does it come from? He's saying, go to the source and address that. And by addressing that, we will alleviate this experience of having a tantrum everywhere. So when he talks about the context of hatred between groups, he has a lengthy section about it, and I'm just going to paraphrase it to three words. Contact without camaraderie. You know, you can be in contact with people, but if the contact is not in any way, shape, form designed to listen to their stories, to share your story, to be heard, to be witnessed and be respectful, then it's very easy to develop hatred. It's very easy to make projections. But when there is contact with camaraderie, with the intention of getting to know you, friendship happens. Amity happens. Peacefulness happens. Respect happens. That's key. Because when we keep things, people segregated, they can't be that creative symbiosis that makes life better for everyone. And yet, even in the scriptures, Jesus talked about hatred. One of my favorite passages, and every minister has used this one over and over again, used kind of as a form of moralizing or preachment. And this is from Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount. 
You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus say, love those who do not love you? I mean, if you think about it, it's easier to make some sort of statement like this if you're the one in charge, if you have the privilege, if you have the position, if you have the money, if you have the power, then it's easy to say, we will love everybody because our position at the top of the heap is secure. But what if you're down here? What if you don't have the power because Jesus didn't? What if you don't have the money because Jesus didn't? What if you don't have the authority because Jesus didn't? Why would you say such a thing? Thurman posits some very good reasons for mental health. Just want to read a couple with them, with you, for you. He said, hatred destroys the core of the life of the hater. It blinds the individual to all values of worth, even as they apply to himself and his fellows. Once hatred is released, it cannot be confined to the offenders alone. Think about it in our age when we see how quickly hate speech gets spewed all over social media. What do we do about that? Thurman says, hatred tends to dry up the springs of creative thought in the life of the hater so that his resourcefulness becomes completely focused on the negative aspects of his environment. Have you ever been around really negative people? And how that negativity just keeps getting spread and spread and spread. It's like, good grief, get me out of here. Lastly, Thurman says, Jesus rejected hatred because he saw that hatred meant death to the mind, death to the spirit, death to communion with his Father. So if we want to establish peace on earth, goodwill towards all, if we want to establish the beloved kingdom, there is no room for hatred, as Joanne so beautifully pointed out. Even though, at times, it may feel perfectly normal. And I think if we're being candid, probably all of us at some point or another, if we didn't feel hatred, kind of felt a strong sense of dislike about something or someone. Maybe no one in this room, but you might know people. <laughs> so what we have to do is transform it, acknowledge it. You know, here's a really important thing I've learned in my life. What I feel is transitory. What I am is eternal. All of these things God is, I am. So I might feel some negative feeling about something, anger, hate, rage, disparagement, discouragement, and whatever. These are all transitory, so it's imperative for us to recognize feelings come and go, the truth remains. And the truth is that all of these things God is, I am. So a couple easy questions we can use to, to ask us to, to invite ourselves into the process of releasing the hatred and the negativity. Namely, what am I getting out of this? 
Seriously, and ask yourself and be willing to receive the answer. If I'm in a rage, if I'm anger, if I'm feeling hatred for someone or something, what am I getting? Is it a sense of belonging? I can be with all my other co-haters and we've got community because we hate the podium. Yeah, bad podium. But we've got our friends because we share that. It's a bonding agent. But really, could we bond over something more than that? The poor podium has not hurt anybody. Maybe superiority. I might feel superior to them. I hate them, so I'm better than them. It's kind of a way, as Thurman says, to deal with an inferiority complex or feeling less than. If I can hate somebody, I'm better than they are. There are better ways to feel at peace and calm in your being. And lastly, maybe it's a way of generating energy. Sometimes when we feel anger, we are moved to action. Now, that could be a very constructive way of utilizing anger, but hatred will just burn you out. So I want to conclude with a few words from Reverend Dr. King in a speech that he gave to the Southern Christian Leadership Council 56 years ago. It was August 16th of 57. He said, hate is too great a burden to bear. I've decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we aren't moving wrong when we do it. Because John was right. God is love. He who hates does not know God, but he who loves has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. Let us pray. Friends, as we come together in this sacred and holy gathering of open hearts and open minds and open arms, we give thanks for the reminder that all that God is, we are. For the reminder that feelings come and go, we honor them, we acknowledge them, and we let them be so that we can reconnect with the power of love that we can use to restore ourselves and offer healing to the world. And in so doing, co-create the beloved community where all are loved and respected and valued. This is our calling to which we say, Absolutely yes. Amen and amen. Namaste. Thank you for tuning into Unity of Fairfax podcast. You're welcome to join us live in Oakton, Virginia, every Sunday at 11 a.m. Or view our live stream services from our website at unityoffairfax.org. We appreciate our donations to support this podcast to make our message of positive, practical spirituality more accessible to all. See you next time.